Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd, and I wanted to take a little bit of time to introduce this topic. What you're about to hear is from a previously recorded talk. And um, I remember when I was studying in Ireland and visiting the UK also, that they used the word brilliant very liberally to the point where it seemed as though it didn't mean the same thing. I could remember having exact change for a cab or a pint at the, at the pub and um, being told, that's brilliant. I remember thinking, it's uh, just kind of simple math. It's not really that brilliant. And I realize now that we have a parallel in our culture, and that's the word awesome. We use awesome as liberally as they use brilliant. and kind of lost its meaning like if you get a text from somebody saying uh i'll see you tonight it's it's pretty common to just text back awesome the thumbs up but this root word awe is obviously much deeper than that and that's what i attempt to explore uh scientifically and um and religiously in this uh, episode so I hope you like it. And when I think about my own experiences with awe in nature, one in particular stands out. I remember maybe 10, 12 years ago, driving home from work at the hospital when I was working at night. It was probably about one in the morning. And all of a sudden, there were all these white lights surrounding and passing by my car. It almost looked like a scene from uh, Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters, when they release all the ghosts from the storage facility and there's all these lights flying around. And I didn't know what to think. I, I, at first I was almost um, almost scared. I thought something, <laughs> something really crazy is happening. And I came home and stepped out of the car and these, these lights, mostly white lights, were just flying around, all around at low to the ground. And just to make sure I wasn't crazy, I went to wake up my mother. Uh, my, our parents were still living with us at the time. And, and I was glad that I could share this experience with my mom because it was just a special moment for the two of us, I think. And it's just like, it's just like growing up, my, my mom was, never quite asleep. It's like she could never get into deep sleep, I don't think, because you never know when somebody's going to need something. And uh, and so it was pretty easy to get her to come join me. We, we sat out on the front porch and watched this scene, and I never saw anything like it ever again. And I guess the best explanation is that it was some kind of northern light phenomenon, but I didn't even know you could see that in, in this part of the country let alone at that altitude. So I'm still not even sure if that's the best explanation for what happened, but I remember after that, my mind feeling totally expanded and it resonating as almost a spiritual experience. I'd like to share a quote from Jane Goodall that I think summarizes what this episode is going to explore. And I'll read it to you now. It goes, lost in the awe at the beauty around me, I must have slipped into a state of heightened awareness. It seemed to me as I struggled afterward to recall the experience that self was utterly absent. I and the chimpanzees, the earth and trees and air seemed to merge, to become one with the spirit power of life itself. Never I had been so intensely aware of the shape, the color of the individual leaves, the varied patterns of the veins, that made each one unique. It was almost overpowering. So as you listen to this episode, you'll notice that there is a theme that the experience of awe has the power of disrupting our ordinary experience of self. And that can actually have tremendous benefit for our well-being. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Kind Mind Podcast. I wanted to start by sharing a little story about 
the sixth man to walk on the moon. His name was Dr. Edgar Mitchell. He was part of the Apollo 14 mission in 1971, I believe. And I didn't realize this, but it takes or took three days to get to the moon. That's pretty wild to me, traveling three days through space to arrive 250,000 miles away to the moon and get to see the Earth from 250,000 miles away. That must have been awesome. So he stepped out and he explored the surface of the moon for, I believe, nine hours or so. And then they made the journey back. And there was a few challenges, and I think some of their challenges came down to within seconds of solving before it wouldn't work getting back. Dr. Mitchell was uh, also in the Navy, I believe, and a very, very brilliant man. The part of the story that relates to our theme tonight is on the ride home, he's looking at the Earth, and it's about the size of a quarter. I was looking at the full moon the other night, and it was literally like the size of a coin. It was tiny, even though it was full. But once it's in the sky, it looks very small. So he's looking at the Earth in the way we normally look at the moon. And he had this profound awakening as he's spinning and rotating in space and has the Earth that small and the whole cosmos as a panorama. He suddenly felt this great expanse of awareness. And looking at the Earth, you can see that all of my problems are there 250,000 miles away. Not only my problems, everyone's problems, now the size of a coin. And not only everyone's problems, but all of history's problems, all buried there in that little coin. And in that moment, he had some kind of awe-inducing experience that expanded his awareness so much that he said he felt like the ship and his body and the earth and the moon behind him and the sun and then all of the celestial bodies were all part of his being. And he said he had this deep realization that he was made of the same stuff that's coming out of the stars, that all the molecules in his body um, were merging with all the molecules of everything else he was witnessing in this vast view. But he didn't really know what it meant, and uh, he didn't know how to explain it. So after he came back to Earth, shortly after that, he left NASA. And it's interesting because it's not talked about too much. And he dedicated his life to understanding what his experience was. And when he came to Eastern philosophy, he learned about the concept of non-dual consciousness in Indian philosophy of Vedanta, which is part of yoga and Hinduism. And he found a specific description of something called samadhi, where one's consciousness expands so much in meditation or in a uh, mystical experience like he had. And he related so much to it. And he said, that's, that's what it was. And he spent the rest of his life trying to understand that and help people. So he had this profound desire to serve and that's how he spent the rest of his life. He, he founded a center called the Institute or Center for Noetic Sciences, and he went all over the world speaking about his experience and started to study consciousness itself. So he went very far, as far as human being has gone, into space, and then he spent the rest of his life exploring inner space. And he has a book called The Way of the Explorer, the reason why I share that story is because these experiences have been happening to people throughout human history. Not just when they're looking at space, but when they have an awe-inducing moment. And now for the first time, we have some insight into what's actually happening when people feel awe and what it is. Awe has been described by modern psychologists as a blurring of the boundaries between fear and admiration. And because of that, there's a thought that two systems get turned on. We have a fight-flight system, which is part of our anxiety response, and the sympathetic nervous system, which helps us to become stronger, 
and to defend ourselves or escape, run away. And then the parasympathetic nervous system soothes that. But usually when that comes on, the other one starts to shut down. And the idea with awe is that they're both flipped on to some extent at the same time, which is why people might have a deep sense of trembling or fear, but also calmness. So I'm sure if you reflect on your life, you can probably recall a time where you had a sense of that, maybe in nature or maybe encountering um, a person or an idea or technology or architecture or art. It doesn't have to be something as vast as outer space. But we now know a little bit more about what's happening in the brain when people have that, that kind of feeling. New studies um, of the brain with MRI machinery, magnetic resonance imaging, shows that if a person is having an awe-inducing experience, blood flows out of the parietal lobe and there's less activity on the side of the brain. So in the parietal lobe is where we get our sense of position in time and space as a separate self. And when the activity reduces in that region, it starts to create the sensation that I'm not here. And that's sometimes described as oneness or expansion or deeper awareness or connection. But interestingly, that is the same thing that happens when people meditate. So now there's a, an abundance of research of all different kinds of contemplative practices of mindfulness, including deep breathing, chanting, prayer. One psychologist has done MRI with Franciscan monks and nuns while they're chanting the rosary. And when they get into a very calm state of mind, they measure the activity in the brain. So we see this in a lot of different contemplative practices. Now, why would we want that? Well, all the evidence is pointing to when you have an awe experience, we become better people. But a few things have to happen for that experience to really transform our personality in a very positive way. And the reason for that goes back to the etymology or origin of the word itself, awe and awesome comes from Old English and Old Norse, a word like agi or agi, which meant dread, which is why awesome is so close to the word awful. And if it's not awesome, it could be awful. Because I said there's a blurring between the boundaries of fear and admiration. So some of people's awe-inducing experiences end up getting interpreted as awful. However, some people's awful experiences don't remain awful, and it gives them a wider perspective on what's possible in the world and gives people a sense of their purpose in the world. So for awful to become awesome, or the awe-inducing experience to become awesome, there has to be something called accommodating in psychology. Our awareness and understanding has to expand in such a way that we can integrate that experience somehow. And that's what Dr. Mitchell was trying to do when he returned. It's interesting because that's such a profound experience to be looking at the earth from the moon. But historically, we don't send poets to the moon. So when people came back from the moon, you would hear things on the news like, in response to how was it, they say things like, it was super. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Until someone like Dr. Mitchell really um, is at a loss for words, but dedicates his life to explaining it. However, people have had that experience while on the planet, and some of them were poets. So we'll come to that later on. I printed out a few poems some, from some of my favorite po poets that have inspired my songwriting in the Giving Tree Band. Some of you already know that some of the songs that I write are directly inspired by mystic poems, from some from medieval poets, um, Sufi poets, which is a mystical form of the Islam tradition, Indian poets, 
Even some American poets from the Transcendentalist movement like Emerson, Whitman, and Thoreau. So I pulled a few of those tonight that I want to share with you because when this experience happens to a poet, it's amazing what they can tell us. And, and if you haven't noticed, like some, some of these descriptions, like as beautiful as they are, they, they kind of sound like psychedelic trips. <laughs> But interestingly, there's uh, new research going on with psychedelics in, um, in therapy, and there's a, a new uh, MDMA study with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, about to approach its third phase of clinical trials. And uh, it's been very positive, but the experiences in the brain actually are analogous to the experiences as people are describing um, same thing happens. The only other difference is that there's an increase in serotonin similar to SSRIs, which are um, inhibit reuptake inhibitors, which just means there's going to be more serotonin, which elevates mood. But in the case of psychedelics like MDMA and psilocybin from magic mushrooms, you would, your brain would go back to its normal level of neurotransmitter production. However, after the psychoactive drug, the effect of the personality change is longer lasting. So there's been really, really amazing uh, results coming out of these studies. It's kind of fascinating. I'm always biased on the side against uh, drug use because I've practiced meditation for 20 years, but I've realized something uh, since we've been talking about cognitive biases, that I have to keep my mind open to what facts are out there about this. And in Europe, they're doing psilocybin studies with depression, and they're getting uh, results in the like 70% range of people recovering. Even one year later, people who have been treatment resistant to therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder for 40 years, like Vietnam veterans, are not meeting criteria for the disorder one year after one MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session. It's pretty strange stuff. When, when somebody would, would use a psycho, psychoactive drug like that, something is going to happen, and that's where the risk is involved. So uh, Sam Harris, uh, um, a well-known neuroscientist and consciousness theorist says that psychedelics are like taking a, a rocket instantly to outer space and meditation is like gently raising the sails. So I think I'm probably in the gently raising the sails camp to explore my mind. But if, if you were stuck in mental illness, you could imagine how finding some strategy for changing our perspective of self could help us overcome the limitations of the suffering within our concept of ourself. And when this reduction of activity happens in the parietal lobe and those boundaries get blurred a little bit, so, do our, so does our package of suffering. Which is why there's already good evidence that people can make progress in their recovery of, from trauma and depression by being in nature. Uh, white white uh, water river rafting has been shown to be highly effective for veterans with PTSD because they're going to have an awe experience which is going to change the activity in that part of the brain. So this idea of breaking down our sense of self sounds terrifying really on, on one level, but if we contemplate that from a safe space like in this room, and we think about what our sense of self is, we'll find that there's a lot of things that are just taken for granted when we say me, or when I talk about myself. Um, I don't think most people feel as though their body is analogous with self, or that their body is identical, identical with me. I think most people have the sense that I have a body. So if we just take a few things in nature, coming back to our body, and we contemplate which sounds more true. There is a car, or I am a car. There is a car. There is a house, or I am a house. 
there is a house. There is a shirt, or I am a shirt. There is a body, or I am a body. Well, most people would talk as though they are the body, like, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm sick, uh, I'm man or woman, and all these attributes of the body. But if we start to think of all the parts of the body and we perform the same experiment, I am a hand or there is a hand. There is an arm or I am an arm. There is a heart or I am a heart, and so on. Even when we come to the brain, we would probably say there is a brain. And if you go, what we would say, inside, but there's not necessarily an inside, but if we talked about what we experience seemingly on the inside, there are feelings or I am feelings. Well, feelings don't last. Feelings come and feelings go. So if we use that logic that the feeling is sometimes here and sometimes not here, then it would sound more true that there are feelings and that can't be me, I can't be the feeling, yet we don't talk that way. We say, I'm sad. We say, I'm hungry. Not every language, Spanish is tengo hambre, which means I have hunger, not I am hunger. <laughs> so what about thoughts? There are thoughts or I am thoughts. There are. So if there are thoughts, then is there a thinker of the thoughts? And this is where some neuroscientists and mystics say the illusion develops, that there is this thinker behind the thoughts, this feeler behind the feelings, and that is who is suffering everything. But with these experiences, there is no thinker of the thoughts. There is no feeler of the feelings hiding behind our eyeballs. There's just thinking. There's just feeling. There's just a body. There's just stars. There's just shining. There's just flowing and so on. And if there's no thoughts, like in deep meditation or in a deep awe-inducing experience or in a deep psychedelic trip, if there's no thought, then there's no I. And we experience this every night when we go to sleep and we stop dreaming. Once the thoughts shut down, there's no more me. And there's no more feeling of my position in space and time. And to have this experience, to access this experience through mindfulness really helps us to shed some stuff. And the whole purpose of this is to start to let go of the baggage that is lumped onto the idea of me. And if we can start to experience life in this way a little bit more, that things are happening, even our thoughts are happening. To think that we could choose our thoughts mean we would always choose to have good thoughts. If I could choose my feelings, I would always choose to be happy. But in a sense, it's a lot more like the weather. Some kind of cloud comes passing through and maybe it's going to produce rain or maybe it's going to keep going. Maybe it's going to be a, a white, fluffy, beautiful cloud. Maybe it's going to be a dark storm. And we really can't control it. And some neuroscientists are saying that we're getting closer and closer to being able to tell you what you're going to choose before you could tell us what you're going to choose. Like for instance, if you observe somebody's brain with magnetic resonance imaging while asking them to choose between two objects, researchers can start to see where the activity is going to be in the brain if you pick this one versus this one. So they're watching and then they see the activity in the brain and they know it's going to be that one before the person knows. That's pretty strange stuff. Um, so there are scientific correlates to this experience in mindfulness and meditation. I think the benefit would be that the idea of ourself oftentimes is the source of all of our suffering. And if we could break out of some of that and feel a deeper sense of awareness and connection, then we wouldn't be so limited by what happened 
to us, by us, because we would see that what we think is our fault and what we think is other people's faults isn't as simple as that. That there are events, and it would probably be more accurate to say that, that there's a series of events going on and we feel as though we're doing it. And that sense of me is largely an illusion, but it's probably an illusion to some extent that helped a brain-body complex survive in the wild. To have a sense of I maybe was an illusion that was chosen by natural selection, was never something that had a real uh, component to it in reality. But if you had that illusion, that brain-body complex would do more things to protect that brain-body complex. Whatever the case may be, the research is showing that if we can cultivate this awareness, then we can have a healthier mind and we can be better to each other. Because the sociological experiments with awe show that if people see something vast and appreciate that, whether in a virtual reality experiment or actually being in nature, they're more likely, significantly more likely to help somebody, especially when they're set up in a study to be in position to help somebody else. They're more likely to do it, which means that the world will be a better place if people could practice this. It's something that children could spontaneously do, but not adults. And I think the reason that adults don't do it is not because they can't, but because of a couple illusions. One, there's not enough time to do stuff like that. So this is really interesting with the uh, mindful experience, which is that there's more time. Time slows down. When you see the Grand Canyon, you suddenly feel like there's a ton of time. Um, so yeah, but another aspect of this not having enough time is the glorification of busyness in adulthood. You know, it's like, I'm too busy for all this stuff. And meanwhile, my suffering goes on and on, and I don't make time for the very thing that would give me a sense of more time. So this is sort of the secret and the trick to accessing this through mindfulness. If you want to feel like you have more time, you have to allot some time to look at nature, to look at the sky, to look at the sunset. And then you will feel like you have more time. And this is precisely why people then help other people. One of the reasons we don't help other people is because we don't think we have enough time to. I gotta take care of me and mine, and there's no time to help anybody else. But if you have a, an experience like this with meditation or mindfulness, you start to feel like there is time because we don't feel so limited by time and by space when you have those deeper types of uh, experiences in, in meditation. So we have to make time, which means we can look at life as if we were a child. We can start to look at things as if we're looking at it for the first time again or the last time, because eventually there will be a last time. And better to prepare ourselves by becoming more mindful day to day so we don't have to cram it all in and some distant point in the future. I remember reading this book, Loving and Leaving the Good Life. It's about a man who was a homesteader in Vermont and he lived to be 100 years old and after his 100th birthday, he knew he wasn't gonna make it one more time around the sun. And so when it was winter up there in Vermont, ordinarily that would be a source of frustration and difficulty. But since he knew he was never gonna see snow again, he couldn't think about any of that stuff. All he could think about was its beauty. And he s describes the colors of the snow in a way as if a child was writing about it or, or describing it. Things he had never seen in his whole hundred years because he knew he was looking at it for the last time. And that's what's missing in daily life. This a little allotment of time for wonder just looking up at night, just looking out, just looking at the flower, looking at the bee, looking at the butterfly, and then just experiencing looking. And I think that it's a good segue to this poem about nature by uh, 
um, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American transcendentalist, in his poem, Nature, he has the couple lines that I wanted to share with you. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. So it sounds kind of scary, but it also sounds kind of beautiful. And this concept of the transparent eyeball has uh, continued to inspire people long after the transcendental, transcendentalist movement in America. So just looking is what we stand to gain when we experience nature in a deeper way. And I'm worried or concerned that even children won't get this opportunity anymore. Why not? Because nine and a half hours a day are spent looking at a screen. And unless the screen can give you some kind of awe experience, it may not happen. I recently went back to my childhood home where I went to high school in Freeport, Illinois, which is west of Rockford. It's out in the country. And there's a park that I loved to go to as a kid called Crape Park. And uh, there's a waterfall there and it's so beautiful. And when I went there, because I had some work in that city brought me back after two or three years away, and I made it a point to go to the park. And it was a beautiful evening. It was probably 80 degrees and sunny. And I could only count four people in the park. When I was a kid, hundreds of people every day, picnicking at the waterfall, paddle boating, and there's just nobody. I went and I walked through the kid's castle nobody there. And I was just, it was almost like, um, it felt like a post-apocalyptic scene. I'm like, this is the place to be in this town and nobody's here. Where are they? And this is the most perfect day. It was 80 degrees outside. So I'm concerned that if we don't practice this as adults, if we miss out on this, we're not going to be able to pass this on. Um, but we need it because you would think that we'd be making more progress in mental health, but it seems as though the field has slowed down a little bit because suicide is on the rise, depression is on the rise, 40 million adults in America have anxiety disorder, 25% of all teens are affected. I'm telling my colleagues recently, if we're making so much progress uh, compared to other fields, why are all these numbers growing? Suicide is up among middle-aged white men, it's the seventh leading cause of death among all men. And Vietnam veterans, 40, 50 years later, or whatever, it's been almost going on 50 years, 200,000 plus still have full-blown PTSD symptoms. Can't we do better than that? So we, we have to really think about this, this connection that we're missing out on. And mindfulness can be the tool. And instead of psychedelics or um, uh, taking one of Elon Musk's trips to Mars, we can, we can practice meditation and mindfulness in our daily life and, and cultivate that experience wherever we are. Like forest bathing in Japan, Shinru-yoku. <laughs> Apparently you just go into the woods. You know? <laughs> and it's free. You know, when we talk to children, it's pretty common to say things to build up this illusion of identity, um, like good boy, good girl, which means if you do something that I like, then you're good. And if you do this other thing that I don't like, then you're bad. And I think that's one of the ways where the illusion starts to strengthen and get reinforced, that if good things happen to me, then I'm in good shape. If I do good things, I'm a good person. And if I don't, then I'm bad. Well, what if you make a mistake? What if this body-brain complex makes a mistake? Or what if something that seems like a mistake happens to us and then I think I'm fundamentally broken? How do I get over that? And one of the ways is by deconstructing this notion of self and creating a healthier one. And that's what some of these some of the goals of the, like the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and, and some of the mindfulness experiments that, that people have show that they can uh, get a different perspective on, on who they are.
Uh, so some things are just happening, and when we judge them, we judge our thoughts with another thought. A thought happens, and the next thought comes, how can I think about something like that? Then we get sort of time-bound to those experiences, even though life is flowing forward, or flowing. Um, but practicing non-judgment simply means not giving an evaluation to the events. So I may get a flat tire, that does not mean that my day is going to suck. That would be a judgment. Or that this is awful would be a judgment. Or this is terrible would be a judgment. Those evaluative descriptions. So we could be factual. The tire is flat. And I will arrive at work at this time. Those are facts. And problems to try to solve. If we let go of the judgment, we can start to simply be with whatever the experience is and have a neutral attitude. And what you'll find when you practice this is all the events are connected to every other event. So you can't really uh, extrapolate an experience, set it on a table and dissect it as good or bad because it's already tied to everything else. So I think we can also think about this as decisions with our life. I don't need to think that the flat tire is awful to decide I'm going to get roadside assistance. So we can make decisions, and when we get better at simply responding more wisely to our circumstances, we could be more effective and we could reduce some of the emotional reaction, cognitive threads. The flat tire probably has very little to do with the spilled drink later, but in my mind, in my memory, I create a thread and it becomes part of the story of my life. Novelty. So like looking at anything, experiencing any, anything as if this is the very first time. Like a child, yeah. And really, if you take anything at all and just look at it, you just look at it for a moment and, and take that time, you'll start to feel that, uh, that sense of wonder. Every time I sit for meditation, it's become such a luxury in my life. Um, it's like the resort of my mind. But as I'm sitting down, I think if I changed anything about my past, anything at all, I'm not about to sit on my cushion because there's no guarantee that I end up in this uh, joyful moment. The parent's personal growth has a tremendous impact on uh, the child. So if we keep improving our mindfulness practice, it's creating a type of environment without us even realizing it. So I think we can do what we can to foster opportunities for there to be some wonder, like certain trips to nature, uh, the things we choose to watch, listen to, bringing art into the home, um, and just creating opportunities to see co connection. I do think that in the technology, there is the opportunity to see something awesome. So I do think that a person can have an experience, and they do have experiences. I just think that it's pretty limited, and the motivation going into the screen isn't necessarily very positive. It's, it, it's really analogous to addiction. Um, we're seeing the same changes in the brain when a person gets a like as they do when they get a bump of something. There's a, there's a dopamine release, there's a, there is a flood of activity to the reward circuitry of the brain, and it starts to create a, a loops in that circuitry where there's compulsion, and people have to keep doing that, and it's very much like an addiction. You take it away, and there's gonna be a reaction like the way there would be if you took away an addictive substance. And that part, I think, is, uh, is scary and dangerous, and it's, it's challenging to, to break out of that, especially when adults also on average spend nine and a half hours in front of a screen. So we actually spend on average the same amount of time as, as the kids. So I think the best thing of all would be for us to take our nine and a half hours and get it down to eight, and then get it down to seven, which is going to change our personality in a very positive way and improve our psychological well-being. Because I think deep down what people all want is to be happy. Uh, people want to be happy even more than they want to be alive, which is why something like suicide is even possible. It shows that happiness is a higher priority than self-preservation. And if my happiness is growing, 
then I think that's going to create an aura where people will be open to whatever it is that person is, uh, that person is doing. And it's probably the most compassionate way that we could invite somebody into this, uh, this way of being or this practice. Parents have more authority to, to implement and set limits. It's just a big challenge because you come up against societal pressures. If we check ourselves though, those feelings come to me, I'll be honest, like I will just notice like a compulsion to reach. I have nothing to check, nothing to look for, but just suddenly it's happening. So I know my body brain complex will, would want to fall into that. So I have to put certain things in place for myself, like just having structured time with it and times when it's just off altogether and times when it's in a different place in a different room and always having my meditation practice. So by having my formal meditation practice, I know that I'm totally tuned out at that time, even if a lot of the rest of my day is sending emails and responding to work and, and doing other things that require me to look at a screen. So building that structure into our life, I think, is, is important. And if we can do it, then I think the other people in our life can do it too, if, if we will set the, uh, set the example. Um, reminds me of a story from my year abroad in college in uh, Ireland. This was before phones. And um, fortunately, I went through all of my education without phones that came after. And um, some friends of mine from Georgetown, where I went to school, were coming to Germany for their spring break. And my spring break and theirs overlapped a little bit. So I spoke to them on the phone like a month in advance and they said, would you like to meet us? And I said, yeah, uh, when, you, when do you get in? They said, come in to Munich on Saturday, this specific date in March. And I said, yeah, count me in. Uh, I will definitely meet up with you guys and we'll spend some of our spring break together. And then I forgot about it. And uh, the week when that, uh, that date was coming, I realized on like a Thursday, and I still had stuff going on, but I was like, no, I wanna, I wanna go see these guys. And I couldn't get a hold of them. I couldn't get all the final details. So I decided to just go and I would meet them. No phone, you know, no GPS or anything like that, but I had a Europass. So I remember leaving on a Thursday night after I finished class and I went to the port in Dublin and I took an evening ferry over to Wales. And I, I got to that port at like midnight and there was a bus station that had an overnight bus going to London. So I slept on that bus. I woke up in London, took a cab out to, uh, to another port that sailed to Calais in France, took a ferry to France, got in on a Friday afternoon, got on a train, first time in a non-English speaking country in my life, and I'm alone. And I didn't realize that French people aren't so eager to speak English. <laughs> uh, took me four trips to Paris before I could really connect a little bit more with, and get some good directions. So they put me on a train that was equivalent of our Metra. <laughs> from Chicago, stopping at every little town. So after a couple hours on that, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't the right way to get to Paris. I eventually figured it out, got on a fast train to Paris, and then it was late. It was uh, close to midnight on Friday. And I remember there's four train stations in Paris. I don't know which one went where. So I just ran to the closest one and there was literally a train starting to pull out of the station. And I remember running up and hopping on that train and climbing in and learning that it was going to Zurich, which is the right direction overnight. So then I slept on that train. And when we went through Austria, some soldiers woke me up for my passport. And then we got into Zurich. And then there was a train at 7.30 in the morning from Zurich to Munich, which got in at 12.30, which was the time of my friend's flight. So I arrive in Munich at 12.30, and I'm like, this is great, it's all gonna work out. And in Munich, in March, it was snowing, and I realized that the international airport is about an hour outside of the town, 
So I got into a cab and now I'm getting worried and I was getting anxious because I thought, okay, maybe this isn't gonna work out after all. And I told that cab driver, get there as fast as you can. And then when we pull up to the airport, he says, uh, so which airline? And then I'm like, oh, I never got the airline. <laughs> I just knew Munich airport at 12.30. So I asked him, which one stops in Amsterdam? <laughs> and thinking maybe, maybe they stopped in Amsterdam. Just a wild guess, knowing my friends, being in Europe. <laughs> and, and he said, well, KLM may have a connecting flight in Amsterdam and then to Munich. I said, I bet they, I bet they did that. Let's go there. And, and, so, um, and so we pull up to the terminal and I remember just running out and I run into the airport and as those doors were opening, I run into my friend Ned and I knocked his bags out of his hand. <laughs> and, and he's like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing here? I said, I'm here for spring break. <laughs> he said, we gave up on that idea like weeks ago. We never heard from you. We weren't waiting for you or anything. We were just trying to get our bags out of customs. They were just doing their thing and they weren't expecting me. And, um, and I remember that as just like, it was a wonderful adventure that would not be possible to take now, you know? So I, I feel lucky that there was a time in my life as a kid where I got to travel through countries and everything with just intuition. Now, I don't think we have to do that to cultivate mindfulness, but there is, you know, a sense of insecurity, right? If I don't know exactly everything that's going to be planned, and if I can't have the phone telling me when to do what, when to turn, when, you know, and uh, when to take a better route. So I, I think intuition is cultivated by trusting our instincts and putting ourselves in opportunities where we are just totally open. It may work out, it may not, uh, but there is something that's going to happen and, and we can sit with that and, and, and be able to get, gain insight from that. In theory, a child has a positive experience and their awareness expands and because of that, they practice something like climbing a tree, like playing a, a game, uh, exploring nature. And out of that comes a skill set that serves them way past the experience. So even after the experience has passed and faded away and the joy that one might have had playing in the field or in the forest, the skill is still there. And that's how we develop different skills, by having positive transcendental moments in life. And children have all these awe experiences. So I'm wondering, and I'm looking at the research to see if there's a connection between having less of these experiences and young people feeling like, I don't have any skills or I don't know what I can do to find uh, a purpose in the world. Maybe there's there's something missing with the awe experiences. And if if, a person could just go have more of those or learn mindfulness techniques like we practice here, they could come out of that with a sense of clarity, a sense of purpose, and at least uh, a deeper sense of compassion for themselves and, and for others. Let me just tell you a little bit about my journey that led me to here. I remember being interested in my own self and my own mind as young as like six or seven, I would go out into the woods and I would sit down in a comfortable place and I didn't even know why I was doing this, but I can remember the first time it happened. I was sitting out in nature and I'm looking at beautiful things. We lived in 18 places before I lived where I live now. My family moved a lot, but my dad always moved us to a place next to a forest, always. It could be the tiniest place, and it was. It was often an apartment or the basement of a friend's house. It wasn't until I was eight or nine years old that we actually had our own place. And that was, that was wonderful. And I can remember very young being in one of these forests and sitting there and looking at the beauty and then closing my eyes and asking myself, what would it be like if there wasn't this forest? There wasn't all these things, people, places, and all that. And I just closed my eyes and I sat in that feeling. And it was like this feeling of emptiness washed over me. And it scared the crap out of me. And then I would stop and I would come back. 
But I got so intrigued by it, I find myself doing it again and again. And eventually, I want to understand what was that empty feeling, that sort of nothingness feeling that came so spontaneously when I was a kid. But I put it away for a while because it made me feel so strange that it was hard to like go to school and do some of these ordinary things if I were to keep practicing that kind of meditation. And I learned that it was a meditation later in life. Um, but eventually it came back. And when I, when I graduated from high school, I picked Georgetown because I was raised Catholic. And I thought, if I go to Georgetown, I can study with the most educated Catholics of all, the Jesuits. And for, once and for all, I can get at the core of whatever my uh, spiritual tradition has to offer me. So I spent time learning from them and uh, taking different classes and, and getting to know those priests. But still, I felt like I'm, I'm not clear about anything. And so I started to take to different paths in college. I met the Dalai Lama my freshman year and uh, went on a retreat with him at American University at 18, 19 years old. And I remember that really shifting my perspective because I came away from that feeling like that was the happiest man I've ever met in my life. And as I learned about the story of Tibet, it was peculiar because I realized that he's not happy because life has been so good to him. And that's just how we're so culturally conditioned that you were constantly actually doing what, what people do with drugs. It's as strange as drugs sound, every moment we're trying to make a decision that's going to alter our mind. When we're at the restaurant, we're looking at the menu and we're not ready yet because we want to make sure we pick the thing that's gonna give us the best mind-altering experience. Otherwise, it'd just be like, give me food. I just need food, you know? But we wanna make sure that one of these options is the optimal for changing my conscious experience. Why do I make a friend? Why do I call somebody? Why do I look at my phone? Because I want to shift my mind. I want to change my mind. So anyways, when I saw this with the Dalai Lama, that was the first time I, I, I had this notion that there is some kind of inner peace that could be accessed independent of one's circumstances. That's why I help train patients to step back when they have an emotional experience because if you try to change the circumstances, if you're successful, you're gonna do yourself a big disservice. If you fire back in a text when someone misunderstands you and you clear the air, it's going to reinforce the notion, the air has to be cleared before I can settle down. Well, what if you meditated first and you felt totally at ease? Now it's like, maybe they'll understand me, maybe they won't, but I don't need them to before I could be happy. And that's a profound uh, insight. And in that way, emotions are a lot more like the urgency to go to the bathroom. And I think this is a very helpful analogy when we get the urge to go to the bathroom, you can't just go. <laughs> well, you could, but it's gonna create a lot more trouble for you. And we know instinctively that I have to step away at the next opportunity. But when the emotion comes, we just go. We just become angry. We just talk sarcastically. We just become harsher. Our body language changes and we just reflexively inhabit the emotion instead of stepping away to relieve ourselves, to process it, to channel it out through deep breathing or mindfulness, and then realizing I don't have to vomit all over myself or other people. And the beauty of mindfulness and meditation is most of the time your problem is solved because if you meditate and feel peaceful, that's what you were trying to accomplish by changing the circumstances. That's what I'm trying to accomplish by picking the, the best vegetarian dish on the menu. But if I'm already peaceful, then it may or may not happen, and I don't need it to happen. Now, just because I'm peaceful doesn't mean I won't work for the good of other people. Doesn't mean the meditator's just gonna stay back um, because there's still a problem but you don't need the problem to be solved. However, the hypothesis is very scientific. Meditation plus ethical living delivers the goods, not meditation alone. Meditation alone will ultimately 
create some trouble, but I think it has to be coupled with a higher sense of ethical purpose in the world, and when you bring those two together, you feel a deeper sense of fulfillment. So then, I explored Buddhism a little bit in school, and um, I spent a weekend with uh, a shaman teacher in Maryland wilderness, and I remember in, at that retreat, um, a, a Catholic nun approached me. I did not know she was a Catholic nun. She came up to me at a meal and she said, do you practice meditation? And I remember she was with a couple other people. She was probably in her 60s. And they went on saying, God, if we had only thought of meditation when we were 19, 20 like you. Everybody was 20, 30, 40 years older than me, but I was already like hell-bent on this search. And I said, meditation, is that like when you like really think about something over and over again? <laughs> and she's like, no, it's not like that at all. And I would get in so much trouble if, if my church even knew I was telling you about this. And so she went on to describe what it is, and that was really interesting to me. Um, so then I uh, started seeking out a meditation teacher, and I went here and there and learned about different techniques. Um, and I remember trying to practice transcendental meditation, but it just didn't work out. Me and the, the local teacher just could not get it coordinated, and before it could get coordinated, I met another teacher. I met a teacher in uh, Oak, Oak Brook, uh, from the Kriya, Kriya meditation path, and um, and I took to that, and I and I and she introduced me to a, a swami, a monk, and I spent six months studying with him, mostly in silence, and he taught me Sanskrit. He taught me higher techniques of meditation, and I think my retreat in India helped me to deepen this practice. But it is essentially this: paying attention to your thoughts and focusing on your breath. If people were ever interested in a deeper uh, path of meditation, you can certainly look into that. But I think all, all paths have their benefits. Um, everybody's different. Like, psychedelics were never something I was interested in. I feel too protective of my sanity, and I know that there's high risk. Um, but I was willing to risk a lot in other ways. I traveled all over the world. I traveled to India without knowing anybody, flew there alone, traveled from Calcutta to Bhubaneswar to remote jungle. So I put myself in, into positions externally that, that I thought were very higher risk, but I got to a point in my life where I felt I have to understand what my experience was as a child, otherwise I'm not interested in anything else. So. I think coming out of those experiences, I'm really inspired to have these kind of meetings because I don't want people to feel like they have to go to these extremes or like Dr. Mitchell, be in outer space before you could ever have this feeling, you know, or, you know, have to make long trips because now I realize you can do it anywhere, anytime, just by paying deep attention. If you wouldn't mind closing your eyes, I'm going to read to you a poem by the Sufi mystic Rumi from the 13th century Persian region, presently Iran. And this poem, I believe, speaks to this feeling we're talking about of the breaking down of our illusion of the small, confined self. It's called Be Melting Snow. Totally conscious and apropos of nothing, you come to see me. Is someone here? I ask. The moon, the full moon, is inside your house. My friends and I go running out into the street. I'm in here, comes a voice from the house, but we aren't listening. We're looking up at the sky. My pet nightingale sobs like a drunk in the garden. Ring doves scatter with small cries. Where, where? It's midnight. The whole neighborhood is up and out in the street thinking that cat burglar has come back. The actual thief is there too, saying out loud, yes, the cat burglar is somewhere in this crowd. No one pays attention. Lo, I am with you always means when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes. 
in the thought of looking nearer to you than yourself or things that have happened to you. There's no need to go outside. Be melting snow, wash yourself of yourself. A white flower grows in quietness. Let your tongue become that flower.